0: would turn in your Bibles this morning to Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5. So we've started this uh, somewhat newer series now on the household, and we've been talking about the order of the household. And after last week's sermon on authority and headship, I wanted to clear the air on some of the things that we have discussed so far in laying down the biblical case for household order. So I want to make a couple things crystal clear. So while there is death to the hierarchy of the household so there's levels right the hierarchy isn't a value tier now what i mean by that is that order does not imply value okay adam wasn't more valuable than eve and everyone needs to hear that clearly husbands are not more valuable or important than their wives and men are not the only ones made in the image of God. That needs to be crystal clear as we move forward. Mankind as a whole reflects the image of God and its equality, dignity, and worth as individuals. So every single person is equally worthy in the in the eyes of God, equal in dignity as they are made in the image of God. But they have differing roles of complementarity. Okay? We do different things and we complement uh, one another in our differences. So the same way that Jesus the Son is not less important than God the Father, those who submit to authority are not less valuable than their authority figures over them. Does that make sense? Okay? Jesus isn't any less than the Father just because he submits to him. So in short, the created order isn't a flat egalitarian desert where everything is just same. Sameness isn't the picture that we get in Scripture. Rather, it's a, a textured view with, with mountainous terrains of multiflorous diversity. There's all kinds of different textures and differences in the created order, and it's good. Okay? The differences are good because they complement one another. And this is perhaps what glorifies the created order the most. The, the, the puzzling reality that different roles can function best to accomplish one goal that all these things are coming together for one purpose and that is the glory of God. That that is what glory looks like. It's all these different people doing different things for one purpose which is the glory of God and our joy in the process, okay? It, it's the challenging game of discerning how many different pieces can all come together to create one grand puzzle. Right? No one thinks that one piece of the puzzle is any more important than the others. Yes, we might gravitate to the corners because it helps us fill out the picture a little bit, but it doesn't mean that the corner is any more important than the middle, right? We all have different roles and it helps us to to see the glory of God all the more. And and while we're thinking about puzzles and games, think about this. Isn't this what makes the game fun? The, The rules of the game, the order, right? Consider your favorite game. Maybe it's a board game. Maybe you're into sports and uh, you're thinking of a sports game. But whatever it is, we all know the most frustra- frustrating thing is when someone tries to cheat the game, right? That, that isn't fun, okay? That's what actually ruins the, the game. But we think of maybe Tom Brady uh, deflating the ball. Right? Not cool, right? Or professional athletes that or maybe your favorite person and you find out they've been pumping steroids and it kind of ruins the whole thing for you, doesn't it? When, when people start to, to, to cheat the order, it really frustrates us. Or maybe more recent and pertinent to the discussion we are, are, have been talking about is the, the influx of Olympic athletes who've been cheating the system by conveniently swapping their gender, okay? You have men that are excelling in women's categories, no surprise, right? It's frustrating to us. It doesn't make sense, and it makes it not fun anymore. Okay? It, it strips the, the joy of the whole game. Okay? So if you think about it, to cheat is to ignore the hand that you've been dealt. Right? So you, you look at your cards and you say, But I won't win if I do this. Okay? So, so to cheat is to ignore the hand that you've been dealt and try to manipulate the game so that you will win. That's, that's the goal, is that you will win. In this case, you're making the game about you and not about us. It's not about a community of players having joy together anymore. It's about you and about you winning. Not the glory that comes from a person excelling in their God-given gifts. It's not about that at all. It's about getting what you want. Okay. Now, when it comes to the game of life, and no, I'm not talking about the Milton Bradley Company game. I'm talking about real life. <laughs> When it comes to that, this is something that we do. We cheat the game of life. We try to cheat the order of the world that God has created to get what we want. This is called sin. This is what base, sin basically it is at its fundamental level, sin is breaking the rules of the game of life. It's going against God's created order where he said, "Here, this is for your human flourishing, it's for your joy, it's for my glory." And you say, "But I think I could do it a better way." Or I don't like the, the the hand that I've been dealt, okay? It's insubordination at its fundamental uh, root. It's, it's failure to submit is what it comes down to, okay? And that's what we're going to be talking about today, a failure of submission, the fact that everyone is called to submit in some way. It's not just uh, wives that are called to submit. It's not just children. Every single person in this household order is called to submit. And even as we looked last week, jesus himself god himself is included in this order jesus submits so so no one gets off the hook and says well i don't have to submit okay Everyone does. That's where we're going today, okay? And the reason that Scripture instructs us to do this is for our reverence to Christ, as we'll see in Ephesians this morning. But before we get to our text today, we are going to look at Ephesians 5. But I want to finally show you the pattern of the household that I've kind of been holding back for so long, right? We've been talking very thousand-foot view of the household. I haven't talked much about particulars yet, but I want to give you kind of the basic outline of, of what the scriptures are talking about when it talks about the household. You actually can see a kind of systematic uh, explanation of what it is. So I want you to grab your Bibles and turn with me to Ephesians 5, not actually the text that we're gonna look at today, but turn to Ephesians 5. And I'm not gonna go into depth in these categories now, but I wanna give you a picture of of the pattern so you can see it and then start to think forward as we go into these scriptures. So we're gonna start right now in verse 22. We're actually going to jump back in our text today in verse 1 through 21. But we'll see that next comes what we're about to look at here. Okay. 5.22. Ephesians 5.22. Here's the order. Wives submit to husbands. Okay. Jump down a couple verses. 5.25. Husbands, love your wives. Chapter 6, verse 1. Keep going. Children, obey your parents. Chapter 6, verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children. Chapter 6, verse 5. Bondservants, obey your masters chapter 6 verse 9 masters stop threatening okay that's the household order husbands submit to wives or sorry wives submit to husbands husbands love your wives children obey your parents fathers do not provoke your children bondservants obey your masters masters stop your threatening that's the basic outline outline of the the household now this is condensed into one really, a really short passage in Colossians 3:18 through 22. So what I just read there is kind of the, Paul's long form of his household order. You, you kind of got to flip some pages to get the whole thing there. But if you turn to Colossians 3:18 through 22, you'll see Paul condenses the whole thing and carries this order into other places. He says in Colossians 3:18 through 22, wives submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Just a couple verses there. Paul gets the whole thing. Okay? Now, someone in here might be saying, well, that's just Paul. That's what Paul said. Uh, he wasn't even married. How can we even trust him? What, 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 what's the real picture of the Bible? That's just a Pauline view. What is the whole picture of Scripture if you read all of Scripture? Well, you will find if you look in the Scriptures, even in the New Testament, you can look at a married man, Peter. Peter gives the same roles when he's talking about the household. If you turn to 1 Peter 2, you'll see Peter gives this same order, and it has a striking resemblance. 1 Peter 2.12, be subject, you might say be submissive, for the Lord's sake to every human institution, he says. 1 Peter 2.18, servants, be subject to your masters. 1 Peter 3.1, husbands, be subject to your own husbands. 1 Peter 3.7, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Okay? Okay. So the basic order of the household is the same across the board. This is what the New Testament teaches. This is what the Bible teaches. But before we jump into any of the particulars of these roles, I want to start where Paul does in Ephesians 5. And before the, the specific roles of submission, he wants to establish an underlying basis of submission for everyone. This is what sometimes uh, people talk about when they talk about mutual submission, because you'll see that right before he starts to get to the particulars. So our text today will be Ephesians 5, 1 through 21, as Paul lays out a childlike submission that is required for everyone before we can move on to the specifics. So again, the text is Ephesians 5, verses 1 through 21. These are the words of God. Let's give attention to them this morning. Therefore, be imitators of God For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God and Christ. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light." For the fruit of life, or light, is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise out of reverence for Christ, the word of God for his people. Let's pray. Father, as we come once again to the order of the household, we ask that you would reorder our lives, that you would reform our thinking, that you would renew us by the transformation of our minds and our hearts, all of our being. We subject it to you this morning. We want to be conformed to the image of your son, Jesus, so that our households might reflect son we want to look like jesus this morning so help me as i speak uh, lord i pray that anything that i say that is not of you i pray that it would go in one ear and right out the other guide us lord as we sit subservient to your word as we try to to live it out and obey you as best as possible help us lord we pray and we ask it in jesus name amen, amen. so as you look at the this text the beginning of it uh, starts out in verse 1 telling us to imitate God as beloved children. right? So we have this childlike mentality. And, and to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So that's where it begins. And then the end of it, in verse 24, it tells us that we should be submitting ourselves one to another out of reverence to Christ. So you have these two sides. And the in-between are really the practicalities, uh, such as guarding against sexual immorality watching your tongue and avoiding crude joking, uh, um, the the generally walking in purity. That's what Paul is saying there. But the repeated theme is walking as beloved children. He comes back to this a couple times. Walking as beloved children in this kind of posture of humility and submission. You you see it explicitly in verse 1 and 9. Paul comes back to the idea of walking as children. He's not talking to children. He's talking to adults, telling them to walk as children. Okay. Now, I've said this a couple times already, but before any of us uh, are husbands or wives or mothers or fathers, any of these roles, we are what? Children. We are children, and in this sense, we are all included. This is where we begin in the household. So childhood in Scripture is spoken of in various ways. There's different ways that the Bible actually talks about childhood. For instance, childhood in 1 Corinthians 14, 20 is not good. Okay? Brothers, do not be children in your thinking, Paul would say. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. Okay, so maturity is actually better than childhood in 1 Corinthians 14. But in other places, childhood is a virtue. Matthew 18:3, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. It seems to be like polar opposites, right? So when childhood is spoken of negatively, it's giving a sense and conveying a sense of immaturity. Okay? That's the bad side of uh, childhood is immaturity. You are drinking milk when you should be eating solid food, Paul will say. Okay? But on the other hand, Peter says, like newborn infants, long for spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. It's like, okay, it's all kinds of different ways that we're talking about childhood. Almost contradictory. I think it's paradoxical, not contradictory. So in the positive sense, though, uh, in the positive sense of childhood, you have an innocent dependence that leads you to maturity. Okay, That's the good side of it. Where you don't know, you're not mature, but you are depending and submitting to those who are above you in a kind of hands-off way saying, I don't know, I need to know. Okay, That's the good side of childhood. And this is the sense in which Paul speaks of walking as children of light in Ephesians 5. Okay, Now we need to talk a moment for uh, uh, about the blessing of submission. I want to talk about the blessing of submission. Think of it this way. Childhood is the context in which we learn to live a life of obedience to the proper authorities and where we learn how we should navigate a humble outlook on life. Right? Childhood is where we basically learn how to be an adult. You might think of it like that. It is the place where we learn to be blessed. And because this is the time in which we learn to grow and obtain the promise that it may go well with you and that you might live long in the land. Right, that's the blessing that comes with being a faithful child. Okay? Honor thy mother and thy father, because this is the first commandment with a promise. Right? There's connected promises to being a child in this good sense. So Paul points this out in Ephesians 6, as we'll look more later. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. right? There's blessings attached to it. And we should realize that this promise of blessing is not so much a supernatural blessing. Think about this. The promise isn't so much a supernatural blessing. It's a natural blessing that's built into the created order, okay? It's not that obedient children miraculously somehow happen to live longer, completely unrelated to their child and adult life, right? Rather, it is that childhood is a place where we learn to live a life of wisdom, and therefore we evoke blessing, Okay? It's natural that we learn the order of being a child, and that's how we live longer. Not that somehow, because uh, mom told us to go to bed and we just went straight to bed, that when we're old, we won't get cancer. It's not exactly what it's saying. Okay, That's the wrong way of reading this. There's, there's a natural sense in which we live wisely, live in, walking in wisdom, and we will actually live longer because we're walking uh, according to and with the rhythms of the created order. Okay? We learn to live rightly in this world as subjects in it, not the object of it, okay? That's the problem with m- many of us as children. We think that it's all about us. The world revolves around me. I am the object of the world and everyone needs to cater to me, okay? That's not what childhood is about. It's actually realizing that you're just, a, a, in a sense, another cog in the wheel, but in a good sense, right? You have a place. And you need to learn that place. Otherwise, you won't go well in the world. It'll, it, will, it will be difficult for you to figure out what life is like as an adult. Okay? In other words, when we learn our place in the world, this sets us up for success. Right? We know how to live rightly. Whenever we honor our parents, it teaches us to be honorable people ourselves. And when we're honorable people ourselves, we attract honor to ourselves and therefore blessings. It's very natural. It's not supernatural. It's natural. It's the way that God made the world. So living long in the land isn't a disconnected promise from our lives. It's actually very connected to our lives. It's according to how we live. It's a natural result of knowing how to live wisely in the world. You can see this in the way Paul speaks in verse 9 and 10. Look with me at verse 9 and 10 of chapter 5. Actually, let's look at the the tail end of 8. Walk as children... Of light, so he's talking about children here in childhood, in the good sense, to adults, walk as children of light for the fruit of light, right? So, so we might say that what we're reaping the fruit of the harvest of our walking, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord, right? It's learning discernment, it's figuring out the world, it's learning how to live wisely in this context that we've been placed. So walking as children of light means that we try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. That's the explicit wording of Paul there. So childhood, we might think of it this way, is the classroom for discernment. As a child, you learn how to be discerning. It's the training ground for strategy in life. If you're paying attention like you should, you're going to know how to be a better adult. So once you know your place in the home, you will know your place in the world. Okay? Does that start to make sense? Because once you know your place in the the home, you'll find that the world actually kind of reflects the household order, right? The the, the household is kind of a microcosm of the, 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 the greater world and the way that it functions. And once you learn your place there, then you learn how to wisely step out of that and create your own household and live in community with other people. And once you realize that the game of life isn't about you, it's a lot more fun. It, it, it's, it's a blessing to us. So we've talked about the blessing so far, but let's talk about the freedom of submission. The freedom of submission. It might sound like an odd thing to say, freedom of submission. So, so we've said there's blessing in submission, but there's also freedom in it. We need to begin to see that submission is actually an avenue to dependency in the best of ways. Where we're allowed to be in a context where we say, I don't know, but I'm going to lean on the authority figures. Okay? There's, there's freedom in that. If you haven't noticed, our culture, though, values independence to a fault. We don't want help. Right? We want to be our own selves, a living life according to our own way. If you, if you look at our culture, you see that they just glory in this. We can, we can think of the people that like to just make up the rules along the way. Right, you've seen these people are like, I'm an independent man or woman, and they don't, they don't listen to anyone. They do their own thing, and they live in this world in such a way where they think that they'll be happier if they just bend the rules all the time and just get what they want. Right? They make up the rules of the game of life as they go. So the purely independent man or woman is actually the hero of our culture today. That's, that's what our culture says. Well, that's what we need to be like, the person that doesn't listen to anyone, that just does what they want to do. But what if we look at the Bible? Okay, we can look at the culture and say, well, the culture says this is the hero. Is this the picture of the hero that we get as we look in Genesis 2? Adam, the independent man, has no woman there with him. Is that the glorious vision of the good life? Actually, God says it's not good. It's not good. So the purely independent man or woman actually isn't a good thing. We need to understand that there's a, a good sense of dependence that the Scripture talks about. So, so when God sees Adam standing alone, he makes the declaration of dependence. He creates woman. right? He brings in woman, and then he calls it mankind. He declares it good. And it turns out that people need each other, and it's actually a good thing. When you have the complementarity of the two being different but still together, that's how you accomplish the vision. Okay? How can be how can submission be freeing though? How can how can this be freeing to our understanding? Well, here's how. If you're viewing the rules and authority as stifling realities, which is our gut reaction, right? In our culture, it says this is bad. That that word submission is bad. Don't even go there. But if you're thinking of it as a stifling reality, then of course submission becomes a dread. But we need to learn to to rewire our thinking, renew our minds. Think of it this way. Ask a professional of any game or any sport if they hate the official rules of the game. Do you think they hate it? Do they hate the authority figures in the game? Do they hate the rules? No. They actually love the rules. They appreciate the rules. Why? Because the order of the game is something that they can depend upon. They know how to function in that game. Okay? If there were no rules and there were no roles, there would be no appeal to order when someone is acting out and, and the authorities couldn't do anything about it. Right? There, would, there would be no order to the game, and that makes it not fun. So not only does he depend upon uh, the rules and authorities to carry out the rules, but he also has mastered the boundaries and the limits of his own role. Like he knows what he's doing because he's, he's felt out where he can discern in life. He's wisely kind of felt out where he is supposed to be. He knows what is pleasing to the Lord and what is not pleasing. You might speak of it this way in the game of real life, okay? So he can, he always knows what the next wisest move is because he knows his game. And because this order is very real, hardly ever do you see people swipping, swapping roles in their uh, professional trade. The pitchers usually don't become catchers, right? They don't swap these roles around. They stay in the roles because they know that that's the way that God made them, okay? They understand that I'm built for this, maybe even physically, not even mentally, that I'm built for this, and I function best in operating in who I am and who God made me to be. Okay, But perhaps the most freeing thing about submission is the placement of responsibility, right? that there are people that are responsible for us. When you as a person are placed under the headship of an authority figure, you become their responsibility. Okay, For example… If your child takes your neighbor's car for a joyride and wrecks it who are they going to come talk to your child no they're going to come marching up to your door and if your child comes up first they're going to say let me talk to dad <laughs> why because dad is in authority, right? Your kid did it, but yet dad is the one responsible for his child, okay? And this is actually a good thing. Now, now it's easy for us to, to grant that example, okay? You have a child. They're not, they're not of age yet. But put this in the realm of a master and a slave, uh, as Paul would say. In today's language, we would say employee-employer relationship, okay? Two uh, uh, adults and, and their relationship. Suppose you accidentally wreck a company vehicle, they okay, think of it this way. Who is the insurance company going to call? The employer. Right? They might call you to, to ask a couple questions to kind of get the straight story. But at the end of the day, it's going to the employer's company vehicle that's going to have to pay that deductible. You're not going to pay that. You might get fired, but at the end of the day, the company, the employer is responsible. Okay? So you see there's a bit of freedom that comes with simply being a subject. Okay? Now, it's not a license to be reckless. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that since you are an employee, you can do whatever you want in your company. That's sinning that's so that grace might abound. But there is, uh, there is a sense of uh, uh, freedom that comes with knowing that someone is taking care of you, right? that someone is responsible for you. And this is the way that Scripture actually talks about leadership and headship. Hebrews 13:17 says it this way. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. As those who ha- will have to give an account. There's those invisible covenantal realities that we've been talking about all along. It's not just that they're physically looking over you and saying, I think they're doing all right. No, they're going to have to give an account someday to God because they are really covenantally uh, responsible for you. Right? There's something that's there of substance. You might not be able to see it, but at the end of the day, leaders and those in authority have to give an account for those underneath them. Okay? And the Bible makes it clear that leaders are responsible for their subjects. So let me give you a practical example of how this works out in my own household. My kids know that if they're ever dealing with any kind of struggle, any kind of burden, any kind of problem in their life, they have the freedom to come and throw that on Bree and I. And not only do they have the freedom and they know that they can do it, but we actually welcome that. If they have a problem, they come to us and they say, here it is, and they dump it on us, okay? Likewise, my wife, Bree, knows that if she is stressed and overwhelmed and has something that she's dealing with, she has a free pass to come and throw that on me. The, the burden can be thrown on me. Why? Because she exercises her rights of submission. She knows that I take responsibility for her problems, and at the end of the day, she can rely on me to take that load off of her shoulder. But, here's the big but, it's, it doesn't end with me. Okay? I am not the end-all. She knows that I won't try to carry that load myself because I can't. No one can. No human being can carry the weight of sin. It's actually a problem that we have. We're always trying to, to get rid of this burden of sin. But God has given us a creational order to know how to deal with those kind of things. So I'm just next in line of the chain of authority. So I'm going to look to Jesus. Who also welcomes me to trade in my burden for a lighter burden. To, to give him my yoke that's too heavy for me to, they would crush me under the weight of it. To take his lighter burden. Okay? And let's not forget what a yoke is. Okay? A yoke actually is something that binds you to someone. I am bound to Christ as his slave. Like an oxen is yoked to its master, I submit to his authority. But what a joy and what an honor it is to serve Christ my master. And even the, the freedom and the blessing that comes with being in order to say, Jesus, I can't. I need you. I'm ready to yoke myself to you. And wherever you want to lead, I will go. And I, at the end of the day, there's freedom in knowing that's going to be best for me. I can't figure out life on my own. I need someone to help me and take me where I need to go, to take my family where we need to go. All the people that I'm responsible for, help me. Take me where I need to go. That's the blessing and the freedom that comes with submission. Because his his authority is lowly and gentle, but also infinitely powerful. Right? He's gentle with us, but he knows what he's doing. He's not weak. Okay? And this is why submitting to one another is as an, as an act of reverence to Christ, as it says in verse 20. This mutual submission is paying homage to Jesus because he is the one that gives us this picture of submission to the Father. Okay? Because when we do this, we're imitating Christ, our head, who loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God, as it says in verse 1. This was in submission to the Father. Right? If there be any other way, take it away from me, Jesus says. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. This is bowing in submission. It's hard. Sweating great drops of blood. That's the extent of the submission of Jesus. He takes it seriously. Okay? Not even Jesus tried to cheat the order of the household for the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross for you. He did it for you as his joy. He was happy to do it no it wasn't easy yes it was horribly painful and sacrificial but he loved you and he was happy to take responsibility for you okay think about that jesus the perfect image of authority took responsible responsibility for your sins you wrecked the car okay you you were the one that went for a joy ride in life and jesus says uh, uh you need to talk to me about that actually I'm the one that wants to to step in and to talk to you about that. When when God comes calling in the garden, Where are you, man? Jesus says, Here I am. He's not hiding behind a tree. He's not shrieking in fear. He's fearlessly standing in your place as your authority, ready to take what you did upon himself and pay that for you. Okay? This is the beauty of submission. It really is a beautiful thing. So church, as you can see, submission to headship, it's a beautiful gift, okay? And this is the way that scripture actually talks about this. Uh, Verse 4 makes this clear, that we're not to walk in rebellion and darkness, but he says, let there be thanksgiving. In other words, this life of purity should be actually something that you're thankful for. And again, he echoes this in verse 20, giving thanks always and for everything. That's a lot, right? What, What are we thankful for? Paul says, everything, everything. That's that's a hard pill to swallow. But think about it, that includes everything. It certainly includes the gift of submission that brings this blessing and freedom that comes as we walk in, in children of light. Because why? We incur blessing upon ourselves. When we live in this way, it's a natural blessing upon us. We're learning discernment. We're learning what pleases the Lord. This is why we must become like a child, Jesus says. Okay? We we must learn that submission is a privilege. It's something that we should welcome and be thankful for because we're being protected. We're being stewarded by someone above us. Okay, We're being matured in our walk of life. Learning submission helps us just to learn life, how to be human. Learning that order is actually fundamental even to our humanity. Okay, So God places us in the household to help with that. The household is a training center for the greater society. This is where you learn how to be a a functioning adult, right? You think of the children that don't have a blessed household, right? They get into society, and it's a sad thing because they haven't learned that. They haven't had an authority figure over them that said, no, we don't do this. This is not how we act. That's what we need, and we need the submission to that rightful authority that says, okay, I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm a kid. Right, that's the kind of thing that sets us up for success in life. If we can learn how to be a son or a daughter, you can learn how to be a man or a woman. All right, and if you learn how to be a man or a woman, there's other roles that God might call you to, like being a husband or a wife. And once you're called to be a husband or wife and you understand what that means, then you might be called to be a father or a mother. Maybe one day you'll get to be a grandfather or a grandmother. We learn life through these experiential roles that God naturally places in our lives to mature us and help us to become more full humans. Okay, and It's not that becoming a mother makes you a full human. I'm not saying that. But there's a sense in which we, where, where we learn that God has for sure called us. When we learn that, we learn who we're supposed to be. Right? We start to walk faithfully in our identities and who God wants us to be. And the only way that we can learn to not abuse uh, these roles that we've been called into is to recognize the value and the worth of our own subjects, okay? the people under us. Think about that. The only way that we learn to value our subjects is to recognize that we ourselves are subjects. Right? You start to think really introspectively about the order. How am I treating the person under me? Hopefully, as well as you want the person over you treating you. Okay, that's what actually matures us and helps us realize what maturity and leadership actually looks like. When we realize that we ourselves are subject, uh, subjects, that's how we start to be good authority figures. In short, we should lead through servanthood, like Jesus. This is the way that Jesus led. Matthew twenty: Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man. Jesus is saying, "Look at me. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many." Jesus, the ultimate picture of authority, surprisingly also shows us the ultimate picture of submission. Okay, he knows how to act because. He knows his roles. He knows where he's at in the created order. And this is what why it tells us in Ephesians 5 that we are called to imitate him. So when we imitate him, that's why it says submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Jesus has mastered this. He is the new man. He's the way that teaches us how to live in this world. And when we live that way, according to Christ, we live in reverence, uh, in reverence to him. We honor our God our Savior, our God, who has went before us and paved the way for us so that we know how to live in the world. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.